Hello and welcome to That's Debatable, the podcast of the Free Speech Union with Tom Harris and Ben Jones. Hello Tom, how are you today? I'm doing all right, Ben. I'm doing all right, Ben. I've been pondering things over the weekend, as is, as is our want. How are you doing? Good. We've uh, it, it's been extraordinarily busy in terms of uh, free speech news with uh, Gary Lineker, non-crime hate incident, um, a whole gamut of, of different stories we to talk about today. Um, so we'll, we'll try and keep it below six hours, which is probably what the time we could fill. Goodness me, we're, we're, we're really aiming for something brief. I mean, the, the one thing I, I, I think we briefly talked about it, Ben, over the weekend. Um, I saw a wonderful clip that uh, a colleague on LinkedIn posted about free speech, but it was about more than just free speech. It was about confidence in our civilization and confidence in our culture and confidence in who we are. And it really made me think about what is an environment in which free speech thrives? So uh, that was Sunday morning, Ben, and I was pondering it all the way through the afternoon until I you know, fell asleep over a coffee later in the afternoon. Well, I, I, I enjoyed that. And the, the, the post you sent me had a clip of uh, the absolutely magisterial Kenneth Clark in his, mm. his famous documentary, Civilization. And he was talking, he, he was speaking in front of a Roman aqueduct and he was talking about uh, Gibbon. And I just finished early this year reading Decline and Fall. So all of these things mm. are very much on my mind. And what strikes me, among many other things, is that the the more confident Roman emperors are reasonably tolerant of a Senate that is uh, still able to voice dissent, albeit to a rather limited degree. Um, and th- they're more confident, more tolerant of allowing different voices to speak. Whereas once it all starts to hit the fan and the empire is crumbling, mm. it becomes much more despotic, much more authoritarian. And that degree of freedom of speech, albeit only for the uh, aristocratic senatorial class, um, is completely obliterated. It's completely, completely gone by yeah. well before the end. Um, and there's something about that, I fear, with modern Britain, where there is not the confidence in the philosophy um, that guides modern society Um, and increasingly uh, whole categories of speech are deemed to be um, threatening to uh, yeah uh, to to it must be said a pretty precarious uh, political system and setup what struck me ben was just he recorded civilization in the 70s i think and he died in 83 lord kenneth clark just listening to him, the tone of his voice, the sense of connecting the dots and creating an amazing piece of television in itself was an example of what he was talking about. He himself was confident in our civilization. And I don't hear that tone. I don't hear that voice in the same way today. I find even even he himself is an example I would want to go back to. So I shall be scurrying back to this stuff, I think, Ben. Yes, go and read your gibbon. That's my... Go and read my gibbon. Indeed, I'll go and just get that one off the (laughs) e-book shelf. We'll be talking about e-books later. Yes, I dread dread to think what a sensitivity reader would do to gibbon. Um, Doesn't bear (laughs) that. Shall we we plough into our main first topic? What's up first, Ben? Well, it's, it's very good news. Uh, you may have heard of something called non-crime hate incidents. Yes. Um, and we try not to use the word Orwellian too much in this podcast, but 
this is something which absolutely is uh, is of the the world of of 1984, um, and this is the practice that has existed um, for I think six or seven years now, whereby the police can record a non-crime hate incident against you for something that you have said that somebody has perceived to be motivated by hate. So to be clear, this isn't something that meets a criminal threshold at all. And not only can one of these uh, recordings be made against you, but you might never know that it's on your record until, I think we talked about this last week, uh, until you apply for a job that requires an enhanced DBS check. Um, and at that stage, we uh, have seen people lose job offers yeah. because of a record made by the police that they had no idea about uh, for something that was not criminal. So very chilling. And the, and the good news is, Ben, is, is and I think many of many, <laughs> many of us get confused about how and when the good news has rolled out over the last 24 months or so. But really, it was the Harry Miller case that that was the great first success where the policeman, Harry Miller, tweeted something deemed to be transphobic out. And he had someone come round to check his thinking. But he pushed that right the way through to the Court of Appeal and won. But the curious thing, Ben, is that, great, that means these NCHIs can be rolled back. And, of course, it wasn't quite as simple as that. Um, it was still a great victory, but the College of Policing um, went away and thought about it, and it took them a long, long time to change their guidance, which I think they changed last year. Um, and at the same time, one of the one of the other things that we at the Free Speech Union were able to do, there was another piece of legislation going through last year. And we worked with um, Lord uh, Lord Moylan on this Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act. And that actually enabled or gave the Home Secretary a statutory instrument that she's now exercised to publish her own code of practice around NCHR. So the, the College of Policing changed their guidance last year, which is a good step in the right direction. Yeah. Now the Home Secretary has said, we don't think that's enough. Uh, and I'm actually going to use this new power that I have and publish a code of practice. So there's kind of two strands of what we're doing, two successes coming together here, Ben, with Harry Miller's win. Yeah. And then with this statutory instrument, uh, and we're seeing the fruits of that, I think, at the moment. It's taken a lot of chipping away at NCHIs to get this uh, regime now completely reformed. Um, yeah. And one of the most extraordinary aspects of it has been that all of this has been done basically off the police's own initiative. There's been no parliamentary supervision until now uh, yeah. of the NCHI regime. So for That's the first... astonishing, isn't it, Ben? Yeah. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but that I mean that the idea that this whole new segment of police activity kind of grew up with no parliamentary oversight. That that it just blows my mind. Sorry, you you very no, good what it, you it, were it, saying. It is completely extraordinary. And as I've just described, this is not something that is um a technicality for people. If you if you have one or something that's trivial. Um, if you have one of these records uh, on your file, it, it could have hobbled your career, your job applications and so on for years without you ever knowing what the cause was. 
Um, so anyway, the Home Secretary has now put this before Parliament's new code of practice, um, and it's got some really good stuff in it. Um, and so it says, for instance, that all efforts should be made to avoid a chilling effect on free speech, including but not limited to lawful debate, humour, satire and personally held views. So in other words, you have the right to mock trans ideology or to uh, to mock religion or to espouse your religious beliefs without that being deemed a non-crime hate incident. So it's a great liberalisation uh, and it, it puts the onus on the police to protect freedom of speech, which is uh, is something we've, we've not seen as much of as we would have liked, to put it very mildly, uh, in the last five or six years. So it's a really significant moment from the Home Secretary. Very much to be yeah. welcomed. Yes, very much to be welcomed. We, we're still digging through, because it's so hot off the press, isn't it? Ben, I think uh, the code will go before Parliament um, and get debated. We're still thinking about exactly which paragraphs of the code are strongest. What does that mean in practice? Um, what does ha harassment mean, for example? So what, what would, a, would an isolated incident um, where a policeman says, Do you know what, I think I think I need to record that, isn't it? Well, that probably wouldn't uh, under this new code be allowed to be recorded because it's an isolated incident or whether it's whether or not it's against an individual person Again, if it's if it's not against a person and just as you say a piece of satire, then that should not be recorded. Um, but the the devil, as always, Ben, is going to be in not only the detail, but also in how the police respond to it. And I think that seems to be. I, I love to be hopeful, but there's always that little bit of me that goes, "We're gonna we're gonna have to wait and see for this to bed down." Well, as we know these days, you, you can't rely on um, common sense being that common or that sensible. Um, so I think I think that's right. But what the what the new code of practice does do, among other things, is set the threshold quite high. So an NCHI record can only be made now um, if the event, and I quote, presents a real risk of significant harm to individuals, a real risk. Um, so it can't just be something that somebody perceives to have been motivated by hate, which is, uh, as we've seen in our own casework in terms of people we've helped, something that can be entirely imagined by the person who makes one of these uh, one of these complaints to the police. So it's a really, really good moment. Um, yeah. And it's something that, that we and Harry Miller and others have been uh, working towards for. Uh, for a long time. I just that there's one one quote I've I've seen say in the Times that was quite heartening from Stephen Watson, who's the chief constable of uh, Greater Manchester Police. And he said it is not automatically unlawful to say or do things which can be unpleasant, hurtful, distasteful or offensive. And he goes on to say that the police should distinguish between things that are police matters, things that are criminal and things which in a free country are emphatically not. Yes. And yeah. that's the kind of attitude that I think we want to see. Yes. Yeah, 100%. And I think we're still going to have to help a lot of our members, and we already do, we'll find out whether they've got an NCHI and then help them get the NCHI scrubbed off their record. Um, I think we've actually got some published guidelines on that uh, on the website. Uh, it's something we have been doing, are doing, and sadly will continue to do. But the number of NCHIs over this six-year, seven-year period is something like 120,000. Yeah. Um, we we need to stem that. Um, 
but hopefully this will this will this is a very good step in that direction i i think it worked out to be something like 60 a day recorded 60 a day it's it this is not a trivial phenomenon at all is that why um, i don't see the police walking around the streets anymore They're it may well be it must, be, work. It must be a lot of paperwork um but all of this is um has been in the news particularly in the last fortnight with um the story we discussed extensively in the last couple of episodes at uh, Quran yeah. gate in Wakefield. So this was, uh, I suspect the story will not need any introduction now, um, but the the boy who was accused of lightly scuffing a copy of the Quran um, was, he had had an NCHI recorded against him by by the police, for, as I say, for dropping a book, for dropping a book. That's how boy drops book. it was. Um, yeah. So we, we have written um, to the police force in question um, before this new code of practice came out, uh, saying how completely ludicrous uh, this was. And indeed, this is a decision that the Home Secretary has spoken about explicitly um, in the Times today when she's been um, introducing her new code of practice. Um, so I think that epitomised both how ludicrous and trivial, but also how sinister this regime has been and uh, this this regime has been um, and that's a 14 year old a 14 year old 14 year old yeah um that is just as you say that's that's bone chilling blood curdling it stays on your record after the age of 18 as well so it's not something that will automatically expire after a couple of years or something like that um yeah for non-crime for non-crime non-incident as i like to call it now absolutely (laughs) Absolutely. Um, and the other aspect of the while we're on the subject of, of Quran Gate mm. uh, has been this very, very uh, sinister spectacle of the blasphemy show trial held at the mosque. Mm. Um, I think most people now will have seen pictures of that with the imam, uh, the poor mother of this boy wearing a hijab and looking, um, it must be say, must be said pretty frightened um, about yeah. the seriousness of of what had been threatened against her son. Um, the head teacher sat there as well, and uh, two police officers. While this, um, this quietly nodding away, yeah, I believe quietly nodding yeah. away as they said, really quite scary. But at least a mosque is a nice neutral place, Ben. <laughs> well, yes, the um, it, it, it left quite a lot to be desired, and we've we've gone through the recording of the uh, of the show trial. Um, and the imam makes numerous references to, firstly, how peaceful Islam is, but these are interspersed with claims that uh, the Quran is more important to Muslims than uh, their lives are, and he's presuming to speak for his entire congregation when he's making these claims. Um, and he uses language that is, let's be clear, really very chilling and very threatening. Um, and this mosque is a registered charity, and one of ah. its charitable objects, one of the purposes for which it is registered, is to promote religious harmony. And so, on the one hand, we have something that is effectively, therefore, endorsed by the British state for this purpose of promoting religious harmony. And then, on the other, we have this imam speaking in the mosque on behalf of the mosque, making claims which are utterly menacing. And threatening. And he makes quite clear as well that there is a degree of tolerance in inverted commas in this case because they are talking about a an autistic teenage boy and not an adult. And he makes absolutely clear that if a teacher had done this, 
Um, and we've seen, of course, events at Batley Grammar School. That teacher and his family is still in hiding, I think, now under uh, living under false names and yeah. relocated. Um, he makes absolutely clear that in circumstances like that, um, that they would be outside the school protesting, that he would produce a mob. It's uh, difficult to have been less clear than what you see in that recording, I think, Ben. Uh, he's there saying, this is, this is yes, it's a, it's a boy, he's on, under 18, like you say, but if it had been Anyone, and then he he not only claims to speak for his congregation, but he says any Muslim in the area, in the UK or the world. I mean, in essence, he's saying all Muslims everywhere will be against you and will get to you, for want yeah. of a better phrase. And he, I, I'll give you an exact quote. So he said, when it comes to the honour of the Quran, we will stand and we will defend the honour of the Quran, no matter what it takes. And he said, disrespect to the Quran is not going to be tolerated at any point in any city, in any country, by any Muslim. Mm. Now, first of all, it's the arrogance of, of this one imam presuming to speak on behalf of his entire faith. Um, uh, but most importantly, uh, it, it's the, the menace absolutely yeah. explicit in, in what this this man is saying. So we've ri written to the Charity Commission and the mosque is now under investigation. And rightly so. Um, I don't see that it has any business being a registered charity um, tasked with promoting religious tolerance while it's it's doing things like this. And then it emerged over the weekend that um, yes. the imam who, who previously had seemed such a reasonable man uh, had been uh, lambasting Muslims and, and essentially threatening them if they took part in any sort of Christmas celebration, say sitting a child on, on the lap of Father Christmas or anything like that. Um, and he, he described homosexuality as barbaric and music as uh, toxic. Now, of course, he's entitled uh, to any music. I mean, there is music. there is music I would similarly describe as toxic. Ben. <laughs> yes. But um, I, I, I wouldn't quite mean it in those terms, I think. I mean, what does he want us to do? Go back to Oliver Cromwell. Uh, even, even Oliver Cromwell, I don't think, went that far. He did cancel Christmas and he did he did cancel music. But um, well, I'm not yeah. I'm not a fan of Oliver Cromwell. Not, not, not at all. Um, and and the, the last thing Britain needs Neither is, was Charles uh, is, 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 is more Puritanism. That's the last thing we need. Um, but so he, he'd been speaking in the past, this imam, and it said that um, anyone from the religion of Islam who begins to take part in the celebration of disbelievers, that person should be punished. punished. So we, so, we've utterly failed there. This is a man in authority. We as a society, if somehow we've utterly failed to teach the essence of what it means to live in a tolerant Western liberal democracy, uh, or, or or we have not cared, we have been too apathetic for too long, or a mixture of the both. I I don't know where we go from here, but thank goodness, in this particular case, we can see what the charitable charity commission do. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's any precedent of the Charity Commission actually doing stuff as a result? There is. Um, in the event, of the, the case of the Batley Grammar School, um, mm. I mentioned a moment ago, um, there had been a charity called the Purpose of Life, yeah. um, a registered Islamic charity, which had doxed the teacher and published his name. Um, and so very similarly to this case, we wrote to the Charity Commission um, and they again investigated and uh, censured uh, the charity in that case. But the trouble is, of course, uh, I just it shouldn't take us having to kick 
various right. aspects of the British state into doing the right thing. There should be this robust defence of, of British values anyway. From a free speech point of view, I mean, that there, there is a completely legitimate argument that somebody has the right to uh, to his or her conservative religious beliefs. Of course. So that's, that's not the issue. Um, of course. The imam is absolutely within his rights to say that Muslims ought not to celebrate Christmas, and that is inconsistent with Islam. That is absolutely his right to hold that view. Um, but what he's not permitted to do or ought not to be permitted to do is, is to hold a, a blasphemy trial in his mosque while uh, getting the benefit of being registered as a charity by the British state. I mean, that's a laughable position for spin. So we uh, hopefully we'll have more news on that and we'll see what the Charity Commission uh, is doing. And we won't give up, will we, Ben? We're, we're not just going to let it go. We're going to be uh, following up on our letters as we always do. Well, um, well, Spe speaking of um, espousing yeah. religious beliefs, uh, we have another success to uh, to report about a uh, Christian street preacher. Kind of the opposite one, isn't it, Ben? So it is. Yeah, this is the case of a um, a really important win, which is it really is the 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 opposite of, of the Quran Gate situation where we're talking about blasphemy. Here we're talking about a Christian street preacher, David, uh, I think his name is David McConnell, uh, who was convicted. I mean, this is the astonishing thing. He was saying things on the street, as people have in this country for hundreds and hundreds of years. He was saying things on the street that were, in essence, orthodox Christian belief. That is to say, uh, we don't believe that marriage is anything other than uh partnership between one man and one woman for life and someone in the crowd actually raised the issue of transgender and asked explicitly the, the, the this this fellow said what do you think of it and he said well he misgendered this person uh, a few times and was himself threatened at that point in the crowd they turned around and said you know get rid of him you, you I can't remember the exact words but they were pretty clear or close to an incitement however when the when the police rocked up surprise surprise he was the one that got arrested and then he was the one who got convicted it's just um, astonishing yeah it really it really is so i think some of the some of the the behavior in the crowd i mean you've got a baton they said to the policeman slap him around and take him yeah. wow that's 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 nice and tolerant. These are the guys who managed to get him arrested in the first place. So it it was a case that we took on um, or rather we we helped uh, a little bit in the background. But in essence, it was the Christian Legal Center that took it on. Uh, yes. And they had a fantastic win uh, with this case, uh, arguing that under his uh, European. Is it the European? It was the, the ECHR, ECHR, European oh, Court of Human Rights, that he was perfectly freedom of religion and freedom of speech, perfectly within his rights to say what he said. And the conviction was quashed. So well done to the Christian Legal Centre. Well done to them pursuing that case. But what I'm absolutely blown away by in this, Ben, is how it's a mirror image of yeah. the Quran gate. When it comes to Islam, it's it's one story. When it comes to Christianity, it's the other side of the coin. And in what what I think about here is this pyramid, this hierarchy 
of free speech rights. And it seems that Christianity isn't very far up that, even though it is protected under the Equality Act. But you take transgender, you take Islam, they're much further up that hierarchy and they tend to win as far as the police and the authorities are concerned. So, yeah, this is a really important case and a really significant win. It is. And uh, I I think I'm struck particularly by what by the 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 juxtaposition of the two different stories. And so the street preacher uh, is also in a way a blasphemer, but he's blasphemed against the secular norms of progressive woke modern Britain um, and has been punished for it by the police. Um, and although we, we have the right uh, result now, of course, he was convicted. And so he, he's had a lot, you know, many, 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 many months consumed by going through the criminal justice system, which must be nightmarish for anybody, it's particularly if you've not done anything wrong. Yeah. yeah. And I um, believe as well, he may have been reported to prevent um, in terms of essentially being a potential terrorist. So our Christian street preachers now are potential terrorists, which I find extraordinary. Uh, there's no evidence that that's ever happened, not in modern history. We're, um, um, we're, we're happy to say we'll, we'll be returning to these themes at an event uh, on the 10th of May, um, where we have a panel discussion about blasphemy in modern Britain. And that will focus both on um well it'll touch on the history of the abolition of blasphemy laws in england and wales in 2008 um but the main focus will be on uh how islamic blasphemy laws have been enforced effectively by the back door via intimidation as as we've seen um but also on the woke blasphemy laws that now uh, predominate in so many workplaces and universities uh and so on. So I think it, it will be a good opportunity to focus on that uh, that juxtaposition. And um, I, what I want to get out of that, but I'm really excited about that. And what I want to get out of that is with the current um, Scottish leadership uh, yeah. campaign, you have a committed Christian and a committed Muslim. And it's very interesting to see who's getting real hard questions about their beliefs, orthodox beliefs. And who's not getting any questions about their orthodox beliefs? Um, and it, it all, it all comes down to how many how many victim points you've got, doesn't it? So if if you're a uh, Muslim in modern Britain, you're deemed to have more victim points than somebody who has conservative Christian views, even if actually there are many social issues you might basically agree on. Um, but it's just not seen that way by yeah. the media class and and so on. Um, I, I, st- I still remain astonished, Ben. I, I think that's exactly right. I remember when uh, we were talking or uh, there was a there was a moment on I think it was the BBC. They were talking about Christian persecution around the world yeah. and the fact that so many Christians across all these countries where people think there are no Christians, but actually there are, yeah. were being persecuted, often under Islam, but not always. And the presenter of the news items said, we want to hear from you. Do you think it's strange that we should even be talking about Christian persecution? I had my head in my hands that that people are now questioning whether or not Christians can be persecuted. It It's just so upside down um, that people don't realise that's happened throughout history. All and, religions in some uh, way have been persecuted. Yeah, and the extent of the persecution of, of Christians, particularly um, in the Islamic world. 
Um, all, all this stuff is is absolutely abundantly obvious to anybody who cares to notice it. Um, but to even suggest that, oh, maybe we need to, to to have another think about whether this is even possible. I, I genuinely was was bewildered. I'm not bewildered anymore, though. I'm not surprised by it, sadly. No, it's uh, no terrifying. I'm speaking of uh, of uh, terrifying. Should we go speaking on? Of terrified if you if you forgive my my clumsy <laughs> <laughs> way of shoehorning uh, the the next story into our conversation. Uh, we're we're talking about goosebumps, the uh, the popular. Uh, You're giving me uh, goosebumps already, Ben. Go go for it. Are, these are horror horror books read by young teenagers, aren't they? Yeah. And I, I didn't read them as a teenager because I was busy watching documentaries about the Second World War. I've turned out completely normal, uh, <laughs> as you know, Tom. Um, but I remember lots of my contemporaries reading Goosebumps books. I remember the the, the front covers uh, yeah. vividly. And so we have a yet another case of a publisher deciding to censor uh, and to to rewrite books. And so what, what they've done in this case, among other things, uh, is they've changed references to uh, a character being plump to being cheerful. And they've also expunged references to villains making their victims uh, into slaves. So this isn't a book that's praising slavery. This is a book in which the bad guys are taking slaves. But that is now deemed to be so triggering, even when that practice is is being explicitly condemned as as the evil that it is. That it cannot be mentioned. It's not a possibility. It's not a possibility. It's not allowed. And and this this happened with the um, the Cambridge Latin course. I think it was last year. Um, so, so the generation of people who who grew up uh, knowing Caecilius Estin Horto uh, and all of that, and all of the the references in that book, which is all about a Roman household in in Roman Britain. Um, all the, the references to slavery have had to be reworked, basically, to make the uh, to, to sort of cast it in the light of American discussions about slavery and the Atlantic slave trade, uh, rather than the context of slavery um, in the classical world in antiquity. Um, so obviously, this is an issue of huge sensitivity, but but everything once again is being seen through this American prism. And isn't one of the issues with this goosebumps thing as well? Um, Ben, that these changes have been made and everyone thought, oh, my goodness, the author is allowing these changes. The reality is the author wasn't aware of these changes. No, and crucially, the author is not dead. So we've been talking about... Which, by the way, is a good thing. It is a good thing. (laughs) But it means that they very much have copyright still and they're very much involved in this process, you would think. So we've been talking about Roald Dahl, we've been talking about Ian Fleming, um, and and the the ethics or or not of their work being retroactively edited, but to take the works of an author who is still alive mm. and expunge them of quote unquote problematic references, um, it's mm. just complete. It is a whole new level of madness, if I'm allowed to call it that. Um, oh, you know what? I'm going to call it madness either way. Um, but, so but it's I, interesting the layers of this, I think, Ben. Yes. So initially we discovered that he. Well, all books were being changed. The Roald Dahl books were being changed after the the author's death. Then we discovered that electronic books were being changed without the knowledge of people who were buying the electronic books. And now we're finding that books are being changed without the author knowing. So this, again, this a bit like the NCHIs appearing out of nowhere. 
these sensitivity readers have gone so crazy, they're not only gaslighting their readers, they're gaslighting the authors of the books. So I, I, would, the, I would say if, if you are a novelist or an author of any kind, um, do join the Free Speech Union. We have a, a new but rapidly growing um, Writers Advisory Council and, and bespoke services for authors. So I think if you're on the cusp of signing a deal for a book right now, you need a very, very good lawyer to go through it and check that you are not vulnerable to having the text edited in a way that you are not happy with. I mean, every every book is edited during the creative process. That's that's perfectly normal. But to have it edited after publication to remove things that were completely inoffensive 12 months ago and are now deemed to be beyond the pale. And that's where we are. It happens that quickly. Um, 12 months. Yesterday, essentially. Yeah. As we yeah. always say, this yesterday you could do this, today you can't. There was one hanging question from last week as well, Ben, there which was. we didn't know, we didn't, we weren't too clear on, which is, the terms and conditions as 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 consumers of ebooks discovering oh my goodness my ebook has changed the question was well is that allowed when i buy my ebook did you have any thoughts on that i know i have a few well i um i went and read the amazon terms and conditions and so basically yeah, you had a great it, week i did, I did. and it, it boils down to the fact that really you're not buying a product at all you're buying a a service is how Amazon describes it. Um, and uh, they do say, however, that if a change, and I quote, materially and adversely impacts the usability of the service, we will inform you in writing. Uh, and if you do not wish to accept a change to the service, you may cancel it. So in other words, if you don't like it, you've got to lump it. Um, so it may be that there's some uh, consumer rights argument that that could be made. I think we'd be very happy to to explore such an argument. Um, but we do increasingly live in a world, as we all know, where you don't really own things. You you rent them. And rent them. Yeah. Uh, whether it's your your house or your favourite films or the books you have on your Kindle or whatever it is. Um, and so I think that's as we've talked about now for a couple of weeks, it, it's very unsettling. Um, and buy proper paper books is my advice. I totally agree. And I think it's great news for secondhand booksellers. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, yeah. But I do wish I could uh, not be forced to go down that route when I don't necessarily always want to. Um, it, that's the... it, it made me think a bit of a bit of Star Wars with um, with George Lucas. <laughs> My favourite it... film, Ben. Thank well, you. But... Oh, you say that, but but which version you see? Because the endless oh. tinkering of George Lucas with the Star Wars films is, is it just sprung into my mind yesterday. Where he he do you remember he couldn't resist adding more and more CGI to films made, of course, you know when yeah. when computer graphics were very much in their infancy, um, and so you'd have these very sort of jarring CGI aliens appearing in in sets built in the 1970s. Um, and and of course all of the films are, are updated to that standard. So if you want, if you go onto onto Disney Plus now and you want to watch the Star Wars you saw in the cinema in 1970, whatever it was, uh, if you're if you're of that generation, you won't be able to mm. because it's all it's all been updated. Um, My only say, thought on that, Ben, is it's George Lucas who's doing it. It is. So it's his film doing something to his film uh, as director so which does make it different it does yeah. make it different but it, it means nonetheless that you cannot see the film that you want to watch unless you have yeah. an old vhs cassette or something knocking around um and so we are now seeing the uh, the intrusion of uh, of uh, very garish cgi 
uh, monstrosities, not just in films, but in in ebooks and all over the place. And these these are not uh, improving the quality of the work into which they are being inserted. I would that, that just made me Tom. think of something I read. I don't know whether it was a comic or a meme. Ben, someone wrote, um, Hollywood haven't remade Spider Man in the last two weeks. Are they okay? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, this remaking of things is 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 endless. I'd love some originality at some point. That would be amazing. I know. We're talk- I can't remember the last time we went to the cinema. It's all superhero films, and the whole Marvel thing has completely passed me by. I've got yeah. no no idea what's going on with Ant Man or Spider Man or, or whatever a, it might be. Yeah, like. It's it's just of no interest to me. I'm afraid. Um, but <laughs> this is a trouble. All, all culture is becoming homogenized. And the culture that that existed before the great homogenization is all being retroactively reformed to fit into our social mores now. Um, and I fear this is not the last time we'll be discussing this topic. I agree with you, Ben. And great homogenization is actually a wonderfully good lead into the next topic, which is to talk about one of our events coming up, um, where Simon Fanshawe has been battling against the great homogenization of things like diversity, equity and inclusion, which is all about groups and identity thing rather than individuals. And the real helpful, thoughtful, interesting differences that we genuinely see between individuals. So Simon, that, that that's an introduction to Simon Fanshawe. His book, The Power of Difference, is well worth reading. But he's coming to speak to us uh, and he's coming. On the 18th of April and speaking with Toby about the power of difference. And the interesting thing about Simon Fanshawe is he's one of the original founders of Stonewall. So he he goes back to when Section 28 was brought in by the Thatcher government and that triggered Stonewall being set up. Remember, we were coming out of the AIDS crisis at the time. There was a there was a real need for a voice to a group of people who didn't have a voice and who'd gone through a pretty rough time. And Stonewall really did a fantastic job through the 90s, the 2000s, 2005. We got the uh, civil partnership. Uh, through uh, and then that got turned into marriage which one can argue might have not even been necessary but hey it happened and then Stonewall has just mission creeped incredibly and and it turned from that fantastic um, phrase that it had which was some people are gay get over it uh, which I always thought was very powerful to come out for LGBT that moment when they changed their uh, strap line I think, was when they they reconfigured themselves around the trans uh, debate, not realising all the internal contradictions and the troubles that we've now been experiencing for the last six years. And I I think Simon will be a fascinating chap to listen to uh, when he comes to speak to us. And even even if you miss that event, he's still always a fascinating chap to listen to. Uh, He's heavily involved in the LGB alliance, I think. He's he's got such a... He's got a perhaps a unique, certainly really very interesting um, perspective on all of these issues. And I think mission creep is right. I mean, Stonewall originally, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a bit like Vietnam. You can you can see you want to you want to to back up a democratic government. So that's your objective. And then you get to the position eight years later where you're carpet bombing Cambodia and you've got to think something's gone terribly wrong. And this is what's happened to Stonewall. They, they, they had this this initial objective. And now they're so entangled, com- hopelessly entangled. Um, in in 
the, in trans ideology, um, they've they've completely lost sight, you know, long ago, um, of of who they're trying to help and why. So so Simon's been very active. Um, he signed he signed an open letter in support of Kathleen Stock when um, her case at the University of Sussex was in the news. Um, for weeks and weeks uh, of the, the harassment um, that she yeah. was enduring at that time. So he was very supportive of her. Um, so, yeah. yeah, do 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 come along to that. I think on. that will be a really interesting event. There's a real challenge. There's a hidden challenge there, Ben, which is Stonewall failed to wind itself up when it achieved all it needed to achieve in law. The Free Speech Union is very successful. Will we manage to wind ourselves up when we get to the point of saying, do you know what? Free speech is no longer an issue. Um, Sadly, I don't think that moment is close, but maybe in two decades it will be. Who knows? I hope it will be. And then the challenge is, will we have the, the courage and the conviction to say, you know what, we're not needed anymore. We'll go and do some other things. Um, I think that's the hidden challenge there as well. Well, this this will sound pre-scripted, but, but I promise it's not. Because I, I've been thinking exactly the same thing, Tom, with exactly the comparison of Stonewall, of thinking, is there going to come a point where Free Speech Union can, uh, like George Bush in 2003, mission accomplished, yeah. uh, job, job done? Um, I, I think not. I think freedom of speech has uh, it existed pretty fleetingly in human history uh, and I, I think to to quote to quote a character from Harry Potter I think it will require constant vigilance uh, to to protect it so I yeah. don't ever think there'll be a moment where we can stand on the free speech union aircraft carrier uh, with a big mission accomplished banner behind us we have some great successes like the NCHIs today uh, they take a lot of work um, but I, I don't think we can ever say Freedom of speech is protected for all time. We don't need to be vigilant about it anymore. I think we'll always have to be. And it will be issues that we can't predict now. Who knows what uh, what will be the cultural debate in 30 years time, say. Um, and we need to invo- evolve, don't we? need. I, I think you're yeah. right. I think we would we would evolve, but we would need to stay focused on the mission. And Ben, you can be my wingman anytime. What you're meant to say then is no, you can be mine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to Too quote much. Top Gun on, on that aircraft carrier. <laughs> Excellent film. It is a great film. It's a classic. That's a classic. Anyhow, well, we we and I can do another very forced segue because we we can talk <laughs> about a very joyful and uplifting film, uh, Top Gun, and and the the sequel that came out a year or two ago, whenever it was. Um, to uh, the 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 very. Uh, very uh, depressing scene of the two minutes hate in the adaptation of 1984 that we were talking about just before we mm. started recording. So this is a new feature that we're going to do every week. We're going to have two minutes hate uh, discussing mm. uh, somebody uh, who has been at the centre of a uh, cancel culture, social media, media frenzy. Um, and of course, uh, today it's Gary Lineker. Uh, who GL has been, as he now is GL, who, who has been reinstated uh, just a few minutes before we we started recording. So, so Tom, I, I I'm keen to hear your views about this, but I, I must say I've changed my mind. So Go for it. Issue, I love it when people change yeah. their mind. Have you have you changed your mind? Well, ben? I was dis- I was discussing this with uh, w- w- with somebody on on Friday, and I gave the example with the civil service, and I said, well, there mm. are some cases where. 
you do have to be politically impartial and where society does carve out spaces where you have to be neutral and, and where uh, you cannot speak your mind. So I, we don't want a situation where classroom teachers are espousing their political views in a classroom setting, for instance. So right. I don't I don't think that is um, an unreasonable interference in freedom of speech. I think there have to be politically neutral areas. Um, and the BBC, of course, is impartial. So that was my starting point. But then I started looking in more detail at how the BBC had been completely hopelessly applying its rules to different presenters all over the political spectrum um, and mm. the, the, the totally inconsistent way in which it had been doing that. So so I've changed my I've changed my mind. Um, and I think that what Gary Lineker said seems to me uh, abundantly daft and history did not begin in 1933. Other historical mm. periods are available if you want to make crass comparisons. Um, but actually, I think I think the BBC doesn't really have a have a, a leg to stand on because it's been so inconsistent. Because of their inconsistency. Exactly, because yeah. it's not it's not asking everybody to be impartial. And, and I think also there's an argument and I'll stop talking. I really want to hear with you in a second. But I think there's also an argument that impartiality is an impossible standard anyway. And actually, it would be better for the license fee payer to know what the political views of BBC presenters are. So that we we know exactly what perspective people are coming from, um, because I, I think we all, many people listening to this will have very serious doubts about the internal culture of, of the BBC, um, mm. and about its philosophical uh, leanings. So mm. why not just be open about it? Anyway, so that's my yeah. I've changed I've changed my mind. That's where I stand now. That's interesting. You changed. I've also been thinking about this sort of. It comes down to the, all sorts of arguments about how we self censor how self-censorship is actually really important. And the way it used to be, we used to be uh, in England, gentlemen and ladies, you know, the gentleman had a discretion about him. There were things you would say, and there were things, there was convention. There was a way of walking through society. And if you broke those conventions, that wasn't illegal. It wasn't, you didn't go to prison, but there were sort of, uh, things that happened. And I think that the issue for me is we've lost that way of just being a gentleman. And do you know what, if I'm if I'm on BBC, I'm, I'm just going to be a little bit more discreet. I'm going to be professionally discreet. It's the same in the workplace. You don't foist your views on others. Um, and I, I, I come from that way of thinking. But everyone's but then I worry that I'm airing too close to that view of free speech is great, but it comes with consequences. It's kind of another version of that that excuse that is actually used to fire people is actually used yeah. to have the state come and visit them. And so it's an extremely I worry that is I don't know where the line is there because we do self we have to self censor to get on in society. We can all choose to be free speech absolutists, but we're just not going to get on in society if we say everything on our mind to everyone all the time. It's crazy. But, Tom, would, would you agree, Tom, though, that the the social mores that have, have, as you've said, have fallen away, they've been replaced by an increasingly uh, radical set of uh, Californian social taboos that are being set by a very narrow class of society of upper middle class people in cities with progressive worldviews the woke 
Um, and so there, is, there absolutely is a set of, of social mores now, but it, it's not about making sure you pass the port in the right direction or knowing which knife and fork to use. It's pitchforks. Um, it, yeah, well, pitchforks. It's pitchforks and, and bringing fire around your front door at, at night. And Pitchforks yeah. and pronouns. And, and, pitchforks and, and pronouns, I like that. That could they, be a whole episode. <laughs> it could. It could. And, and so the social mores, you know, they, they, there is still a code of conduct. Um, but it's entirely mm. dictated by this very narrow um, social class to the to to the detriment of everybody else. Um, but I, I, I think I, nature abhors a vacuum, doesn't it, Ben? It so, does. so 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 you know we 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 threw off the shackles of what it means to have all of these social uh, conventions, yeah. and we thought we were free. And then what happened? Well, actually, a new set of chains. We, you know, that there, there are constraints on our lives, inevitably. You yeah, know, we can't jump out of out of a window and fly. There are no. gravity will get you in the end. And this idea of what is free, and we're getting very philosophical now. We are. But yes, I, I totally agree that, that what we've replaced it with is just so much worse, uh, in my view. It's so restrictive. I mean, in terms of the sort of the opprobrium or the 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 social censure, so not the punishment, the softer sort of adverse yeah. reaction that you get for breaching society's rules. I, I think the the response to I mean, there'll be some people who agree with Gary Lineker and some people who don't. I'm not a BBC presenter. I don't have to be impartial. I don't agree with him. Um, no. And I think the response to that is is to say that by using such a um, over the top and extreme uh metaphor comparing uh, Rishi Sunak's government to Nazi Germany I mean all you do by saying something like that is expose yourself as an idiot and that's that's yeah. the, that's the punishment you suffer you look like an idiot and that's it and it's the Nazi test isn't it again we need to teach our children to insult people better that's the <laughs> other thing I thought over the weekend you find other people in history that you can insult people with I you yes. know someone else that, that murdered lots of people back in the Middle Ages. It's not just the Nazis. It's just not Nazis. But the trouble is, we, we have we have people people in charge of society who think history began in 1933 and politics began in 1997, and know nothing beyond that. Beyond all um, that war. Yeah, yeah. The, the, one of the aspects to it. I mean, we're typically defending. I mean, one of the situations we often face is is where workplaces ought to be politically neutral. You shouldn't have to take politically loaded uh, training. Or uh, in order to keep your job, so we're often defending political neutrality in that sense. But it occurs to me that there are some circumstances in which an employer could reasonably punish uh, an employee for what they said. So if you, if you do a sort of Gerald Ratner and you describe your own product as total crap or whatever it was he he said, um, obviously his employer um, has an objection that is entirely reasonable um, to that. So if you cause financial harm to your company, it's not it's not therefore unreasonable that you suffer some sort of detriment for that. But at the moment, the balance is so far against the employee or the contractor um, and allows the employer such sweeping power to determine um, what brings a company into disrepute. So whether it's your views about the trans debate or about the small boats or whatever it is. Um, But we've been pushing this argument for three years that employees need stronger free speech protections Mm. outside work also that employers should not be forcing employees to do these politically loaded edi courses and so on and of course what's happened and i'll go i'm sorry i'm going to go into a little bit of a rant now um gary lineker there were seven or eight news stories 
uh, on the BBC homepage yeah. all weekend about this as though it was the most important story uh, in the world. And suddenly a whole section of people who don't care about the bus driver we represented or the, the train yeah. conductor or the NHS nurse, who are all the actual everyday victims of cancel culture, um, suddenly they're up in arms defending yeah. the right to f- free speech. Um, yeah. Because it's, it, it's, a, it's something they feel strongly about because it's so public and it's Gary yeah. Lineker and it's immigration and it's whatever yeah. and whatever because and it's whatever. Fashionable. Because it's fashionable. And so I just wish that set of people would be consistent. And I, I saw Tim Farron, um, the uh, the so-called Liberal Democrat MP, um, had, had put out a snarky tweet saying he's he sure the, the free speech union would, would be on the case. Um, now, I don't know off the top of my head if Gary Lineker is a member of ours or not. But mm. the point I'd like to make, aside from everything we've talked about um, just now, uh, is that we will still be defending free speech for people that we personally agree with or personally disagree with. Yes. For years and, and years Gary and years. Lineker and years. Picks up the phone, if Gary Lineker picks up the phone and says, look, I'm not sure that the BBC, I think the BBC have overreached and are interfering in my private life and my political beliefs, then we will look at those and we will we will seek to defend him where there's um, a defense to be made we will not treat him differently because he's no. a celebrity whereas tim farron i mean maybe i've missed it but i've not seen him particularly active about the perils of of council culture and the effect it's happening it's having on the i think we've dealt with two thousand cases since we've more than two thousand cases since yeah. we've been founded so so i hope tim farron is still tweeting about free speech and its importance next week not least because of course he went through a pretty horrendous saga of his own when he was the leader of the Liberal Democrats because of his traditional conservative Christian. Which was exactly the, yeah, he was in exactly that boat that I talked about with the uh, Scottish leadership, but he was the Liberal Democrat leadership and it scuppered it for him and it should not have done, in my opinion, because uh, they were orthodox Christian beliefs. So one would hope he'd be a bit more sensitive to the position of people who uh, who have dissenting views in our homogenized society but we shall yeah. see anyway it's not all doom and gloom we've had this nchi victory uh the uh the street preacher uh david mcconnell uh his appeal has been successful we've got a couple of excellent events coming up with uh simon fanshaw and the event i mentioned about uh blasphemy so it will be another busy week for free speech and uh we'll see you next time is there anything you want to add tom no just to say i think that's been i, I think that's been a a discussion where we tied quite a few things together. We've seen mirror image uh, issues and talk through those. And then we've seen themes around the hierarchy of um, uh, of protections coming through as when well, the hierarchy of victimhood. And I think I think we'll come back to these things again and again in, in future episodes, I'm sure. But yeah, that's all for, for this week. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, uh, everyone listening. Uh, and uh, we will see you next week. We'll speak to you next week. Goodbye.